Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And now our listeners can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. Restaurant or room service, what would the boss do? Either way, the boss would choose Hilton Hotels and Resorts to get down to business. And a little pleasure. Check out Hilton Hotels and Resorts and travel like the boss. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here in New York City. If you like this show, please tell someone else. Thank you. Okay, that's my intro. This is Julia Angwin, who I've known for... We're going to date ourselves. At least a decade. Yeah, let's just go with a decade. <laughs> you used to work at the Wall Street Journal. I was part of All Things D, which was journal adjacent. <laughs> right. Then you, uh, so we kind of competed. You were great. You got nominated for Pulitzers. I did not. You went to ProPublica. You were kicking ass there, covering Facebook and, and, and all sorts of abuses by tech giants and others. And now you have founded a new company called? The Markup. Which is a publication to be. Yes, it will begin publishing news in early 2019. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you announced this week, there's a couple different ways to fund a new publication these days. You can go ask uh, people for money, uh, actual consumers for money. That's a, a lot of people who come on this show to talk about their paywall or subscription strategy. You can find a very wealthy person to fund your company. You guys went with strategy B for now. Yes, we did. We were, we, to be clear, we went with the nonprofit philanthropic model. So it's $23 million? Yes. In seed money? It's good seed. 20 of that's from Craig Newmark, who most of us know as Craig from Craigslist, and then some assorted good people from foundations, Foundation, Foundation, yes. Okay, so we've we set the table. This is very exciting. People are very excited about what you're doing. Do you want to describe just briefly what it is, and then we can, we can poke at it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the markup is a nonprofit newsroom, as I said, and it is we're going to be investigating the impacts of technology on society. And by technology— Specifically looking at tech. Yeah, and technology, we kind of look at two different ways. So one is the companies that you think of as tech, right, the big tech platforms. But also technology um, is being used in all sorts of ways, right, the algorithm that decides which um, who gets flagged for further screening at the airport, right? There's technology that's being used in all sorts of ways in our lives. This is kind of the recode pitch, right? Like tech is everything now. Yes. So everything is tech. I mean, I think Mark and Dreesen software, software is eating yeah. the world. He may have started it before you guys He's did. probably better at it than we are too. But, <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's tech infused, but but a specific focus, it seems like, or at least that's when we were reporting in ProPublica, focused on the Facebooks of the world. Or are you yeah, going to spread it out? equally okay. focused on Facebooks and, you know, some of the work we did there, for instance, was about the software used for criminal sentencing or the algorithms used in insurance for redlining. So we kind of divided our time between the big tech giants and the use of tech in other parts of life. And your premise is, and I think correctly, uh, your premise is correct, that, that up until now there really hasn't been a lot of good, consistently skeptical, smart reporting. Not smart data-focused reporting on on technology. I think I would phrase it just slightly different, Uh which is I think there are a lot of really good reporters doing skeptical, smart reporting. Uh But what we have lacked as an industry, journalism is just crippled financially, and we have lacked the resources for really intensive data investigations, which are expensive. And so that's how we're going to approach this topic with a staff that is half programmers, half journalists. So that's very expensive. And the kinds of investigations we're going to do are going to maybe take a long time. 
So explain what data-focused journalism is and, and how it differs from the 538 Nate Silver yep, data right. journalism. I, I'm struggling because I actually would like to come up with a new word yeah. because to differentiate myself from what people think of as data journalism, but I haven't come up with that word yet, but I will let you know what I yeah. do. Essentially, data journalism has long meant looking at existing data sets, right? So if you look at 538, they're really good at statistical meta-analyses of existing data. So that's why they do polls, you know, baseball, the Fed, these are all data these are sets. sets that exist. Someone else has collected the yes. data. They're doing the smart work of an right. analyzing it. Correct. And that's totally uh, legitimate and awesome work. What we want to do is collect our own data. And the reason is that there um, many of the questions that are so important for society to answer, like, is staring into my phone 24 hours a day going to make me blind yeah. and stupid? <laughs> or don't There's not yes. an existing you, you data you set. Need to study that. I feel like we do need some All data right. on that, <laughs> right? So my point is there isn't data on some of these really important questions. And so we would like to collect data sort of at scale, you mm-hmm. know, not just a few anecdotal interviews, but like as best we can, sort of bigger data sets about to, these questions. To be clear, there is a strain of investigative journalism that has been data-focused mm-hmm. for a long time. Correct. Again, I'm very old, but I do remember for years someone on a newspaper I would work with would go to the, I don't know what this conference would be called, but they'd come back saying, I want to propose a, a, a data-focused, you know, a lot of it would be like going through phone books or whatever. Like, But the, the idea of taking big clumps of data and, and using it to tell a story. Absolutely. And I, all I want to do is scale up that type of work yeah. and focus it towards tech and society. So this is work you've been doing yes. really well at ProPublica. Yes. Um, the, the stuff I'm most familiar with is the stuff you've gone after Facebook about. Mm-hmm. Gone after slightly the wrong verbiage. Presented evidence. <laughs> but good. You, you held them to account um, multiple times. Tell, tell us your greatest hits at Facebook, the, of your Facebook reportage. So with Facebook, there were a couple different strands of our reporting. One of them was uh, discriminatory advertising. So we realized that they had, you know, given advertisers the ability to target ads really granularly, and that, in fact, they had this ability to block people from seeing your ad. So you could buy an ad and say, never show it to a black person. Yeah. So there's a little drop-down menu called exclude these groups, and they had racial groups in there. And so— This sounds bad. It already sounds but, bad. <laughs> but just to play devil's advocate, this is one—the idea, this granular targeting is the idea that has made Facebook as powerful and successful as it is, and they're— the good part of their pitch is we're going to deliver ads to people you want to deliver ads to. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Right. It just happens to be illegal Uh in certain categories of advertising, housing, employment, and credit. So discriminating in advertising. Employers are, and housing advertisers and credit advertisers cannot discriminate in advertising by race. So Facebook enabling this could well be illegal. These cases are now in the courts, so I'll let the courts decide. But there's a debate about the legality of this. And Facebook, well, and, and, there's a debate about the liability, right? So the question is really, is Facebook as a platform liable or is it the advertisers themselves who are liable? That's the debate. The debate about whether you can do discriminatory advertising um, in those categories is, is, is settled law. I think there was one, like you did a series of these. Yes. And, and, and a bunch of them, Facebook said, yeah, sorry, or we'll fix it, mm-hmm. we'll apologize. There was one where they pushed back and said, age, no, you're on wrong. On age discrimination in employment. So yeah. we found dozens of the leading companies in America were discriminating in their ads. They would target their employment ads just to younger workers. Uh-huh. And Facebook itself actually was targeting their own employment ads to younger workers. And Facebook 
disputed, A, its liability as the platform, but B, they said, look, you can have a multi-pronged employment strategy. Let's say you, you're using Facebook to reach the younger workers, but you have another strategy for reaching older workers. That's something that people have to prove to the courts, right? The court would have to feel really clear that this doesn't violate the age discrimination laws that we have on the books in both state and federal law. So leaving aside the legality of it, right? Mm-hmm. This is good, important journalism, shines a light, let people know what's what's going on. Basic journalism, right? I mean, basic in the... Accountability, in, yes. In the way that you would like <laughs> yeah. journalism to, to be basic. You were doing it ProPublica, which is also a nonprofit. Um, they have a model where they publish on their own site and then also like distribute their stuff to places like the New York Times or work with the New York Times. So it got lots of attention. Again, like I said, it got the Times, it got Facebook to, to acknowledge its mistakes in many cases. So why not keep doing that at ProPublica? ProPublica was a great place for me to do this work, but... Jeff and I, my partner, he's been my partner in all these investigations. He's sort of the programmer. I'm the journalist, although I think we're both a little of both. Um, I have a programming background as well. Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I grew up in um, Palo Alto, and Steve Jobs was, you know, a neighbor, and he was funding— Like a neighbor neighbor? Like next door? No, not next door, but everybody knew him. You know what I mean? He was like around. Uh (laughs) And uh, he funded a program for all fifth graders to learn to program, so I learned in fifth grade— I um, and my parents were both programmers, so I um, always was going to be a programmer. I studied math in college, and my university didn't have computer science, but I took computer science, and I worked my summers at Hewlett Packard. I was going to go back after graduation to Hewlett Packard. So this is not just I was journalism. This is not just I was around tech and I learned basic. No, I've, no, I did Pascal and Lisp. You were Lisp in there, was yeah. an amazing language, I would like to I'm say. I'm nodding like I've heard of Lisp. <laughs> I haven't heard of Lisp. Um, they're all old languages, yeah. and people now would laugh at me, right? So I haven't coded for a long time. But, like, I, I guess the way you were Wall Street Journal adjacent, I'm, like, coding adjacent yeah, yeah. now. <laughs> Got it. Um, so you're doing all that, again, yeah. at ProPublica. They gave you the resources to do this good stuff. I'm just pushing a little bit because there's got to be a story, right? And it could be as basic as... I wanted to do my own thing under my own auspices and not be part of something else. I wanted to do my own thing. No, so here it's a simple story, which is that— Because I'm sure they'd like you to keep staying and doing that journalism at ProPublica. Yeah, we had a long conversation with them um, about what we wanted, Jeff and I. And and the thing is that, you know, you are familiar maybe more recently with the— we did about a year's worth of work last year on Facebook. But the year before, we had done um, insurance algorithms and criminal— risk scores and those algorithms that were biased. And and those investigations were really heavy duty. And I was feeling that um, I just didn't like having to choose. Like, I feel like there's such important things happening in the criminal justice system with algorithms and also Facebook. And so I guess my ambitions were just that I wanted more teams. Like, I wanted there to be more of us. I wanted to have 20 reporters or 15. And you figure you could do that better on your own than going to Craig Newmark and saying, can you donate an extra 20 million bucks to ProPublica so we can fund this within ProPublica? So I had conversations with ProPublica about whether I could do it internally. And that was my first thought was that, like, I would propose to them that I would do it internally. But for a whole bunch of reasons, they weren't into that idea. You know, they're a young place themselves. And so the idea of having already a startup within the startup. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot, right? And um, so we all agreed in a very adult way that it was better for everyone to go their separate ways. But and you should not apologize for being ambitious and saying I wanted to run my own thing and do it. My I own did way. want to run my own thing, but I actually would have. Um, I was also really terrified of yeah. running my own thing, um, and so I'm 
I'm super lucky that I found a business partner. So I probably wouldn't have left if it was just Jeff and I, because I think we were smart enough to know that journalists are um, not always the greatest at running a business. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so it wasn't really until we found Sue Gardner and had her, she agreed to join us that we felt the confidence She's to do it on Wikimedia our own. She's from Wikimedia slash Wikipedia. I want to talk to you about the business model a little, uh-huh. bit, a little bit more. Our business model involves advertising. We have many fine advertisers. We are going to hear from one or maybe two of them right now. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by Ericsson. On Recode Media, we talk to change makers in their fields. In this next advertiser segment from Ericsson, you'll hear about how 5G technology is the next wave of change in the world of mobile connectivity. And now, the 5G Meditation Minute. Welcome. Just relax your body. Breathe. Repeat your mantra and feel the calm wash over you. 5G is here. 5G is here. And it's going to change the way we live. This next generation of wireless technology will revolutionize how we send and receive data. And Ericsson is one of the companies building the infrastructure we'll need. Push away the bad reception and overcrowded networks. 5G uses multiple antenna to boost capacity. So in large crowds of people, like at a packed concert, you can still connect and share selfies instantly. (sighs) Embrace the cloud. With minuscule latency and edge computing, 5G makes even remote files behave as if they were on your device. And you will have so much more to be thankful for. Augmented reality, 8K streaming, AI-assisted services, smart cities, and the ever-growing Internet of Things. Your future is empowered by 5G. (sighs) Lie back. Be present. Focus on real connections. Ericsson is bringing 5G to life. Breathe in and breathe out. Repeat your mantra and feel the calm wash over you. 5G is here. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Erickson for sponsoring this episode of Recode Media. I'm back with Julie Angwin, who's sipping tea. It's the end of the day. You're going to hear this hours from from this recording. This is fresh, live podcasting content. We were talking about sort of the, the creation-to-be of the markup, and I'm really curious about what it means that you're doing this as a nonprofit, um, how at least initially you don't intend to charge people for this content. Again, I'm not really exaggerating, but probably one out of every two guests that come on this this show is figuring out some way to charge people or is already charging people for their content. And it's now sort of the new conventional wisdom is selling subscriptions or some version of that is is not only a good idea for your business, but it's inherently good for the journalism. People who value what you do will pay you for it. And if you make stuff that people value, it's, it's a virtuous cycle. So what does it mean that this is going to be a nonprofit? Does it mean that this kind of work can't be supported by the market? Well, I don't know, right? I'm not a 
total expert on business models and journalism, but I know what I've experienced in yeah. journalism over the many, many years that I've been in it. And what I've seen is that the for-profit model has led to the shrinking of resources for investigative work and long form and the stuff that I do, which is really resource intensive. Yeah. Um, I certainly saw that at the Wall Street Journal. And when I got to ProPublica, it was my first time at a nonprofit journalism company. And I had never in my life been in a newsroom that was expanding. It was incredible, right? There was no rounds of layoffs. There was no yeah. fear and dread all the time. And um, it really convinced me that for the moment we're in right now, this is um, the way I would like to be. Like, I want to be in the part that seems to be thriving. And I agree with you. There's a lot of questions because how long are these rich people going to support us, yes. right? But I think for the kind of work we do, investigative, expensive work, it's hard for me to imagine that readers um, definitely want to support it through paying directly through a paywall. Because the older model for supporting investigative journalism was some combination of you had a publication and it was ad-supported and, and or maybe there were subscriptions like the Wall Street Journal and that papers that were wealthy enough, and for a long time there were a bunch of them, could do investigative journalism and depending on your view of it, it was either a worthy thing to do, full stop, and or it was a glamorous thing to do and it got you prizes and it made other journalists want to work there. And very often um, you could see the, the bad version of this, which is a 10 or 12 or 50 part special published at the end of the year built for an award committee and not for actual readers and, and very few people would actually get through the thing. But now we're in a world where you're saying we want to do this stuff. It's good, full stop. But it's not tied to the business model. I guess I'm just sort of talking nonstop because I'm trying to figure out if it's a bad thing that you're not selling, you're not asking people to pay for this directly. Well, we are, first of all, going to ask people to donate. So yeah. we launched our static website, which literally is just like an About Us page, and it has a donate page. So How's that going? <laughs> We're four, four days into it? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know— not a lot of donations yet. Okay. But we haven't shown the money, right? Like we haven't published any mm -hmm. news. But we are going to hope that our readers will donate. And what we're going to do is the trade-off that we're going to make, and this is going to be our favorite topic because we like to fight about ad tech, is we are not we're not going to track them, right? Like so a lot of people ask for money and they do all the surveillance yeah. and tracking and data mining. But we are going to have a really clean website and do as little as possible, right? There's some things like the Stripe payment processor or MailChimp or yeah. something that might, you know, you can't avoid some but amount of But we are going to be as virtuous yeah. tracking-wise as yeah. we possibly can. We're going to respect the reader's privacy as best we can, and we want, we hope that that encourages them to want to contribute to us. And there's definitely a sizable community of people who are really uh, intellectually, theologically opposed to ad tracking. It really upsets them. They're very vocal on the it internet. It seems as though some of those are the former Facebook uh, executives who've all just they left all, in the bus. They all get, they all, well, they all get religion. They don't return the money, though, I've noticed. Um, they keep the money. Uh, yeah, those are good stories. The, the whole WhatsApp thing was so weird. I was just going back to the story. Did you read the story today? It was oh, so yeah. great. Yeah, I read the story. And I went back and found my story from 2016, which just tracked the WhatsApp guy's comments from 2010. You know, advertising mm -hmm. is terrible. They're literally quoting Tyler Durden from uh, whatever that dumb movie was with Brad Pitt. Fight Club. Um, you know, it had this very like, ads are terrible, man, and we'll never do it. And then they sell the company for $22 billion. And then a few years later, oh, yeah, we sold our, we sold our company to an advertising company. <laughs> That's how that's going to work. 
I also love the, the, the you know, Brian Acton, we're just digressing here, but Brian Acton, who's the source of the Forbes story today, is putting money into uh, Signal. Signal, and, and that's a privacy thing. But his co-founder, Jan Coombe, um, the, the line was, has left to pursue uh, his collection of uh, air air. Air-cooled Porsches. Porsches. Yeah, that was a fantastic detail. A great I don't even know what that means, but it sounds it really sounds glamorous. <laughs> uh, and let's talk about where the, the money is coming from, because there is no free money, right? And 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 you like Craig Newmark, uh, my coworker Kara Swisher likes Craig. Lots of people like Craig Newmark, and you had some line here. I won't bother to quote it back to you, saying he's great because we're we're perfectly aligned. And let's let's say every let's say everyone is working with the best intent. Um, but how do you insulate yourself when Craig Newmark eventually says, I don't like that story you did or find some way to express disapproval or says, you guys are doing great, but I'm not going to fund this anymore? Or how do you how do you buffer yourself Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, right? So uh, in our conversations with Craig leading up to this investment, what was so great about those conversations was that he said – I know that I can never see a story before it's published. I will not ever see one. I would like to email you if I think it needs a correction. And I said, yes, you can do that. That would be fine. And he also has said, I'm not really going to pass along. I I could pass along some story ideas, but I may or may not. And you don't have to do any of them, right? And so – in terms of funders, that's about as much as you can ask for. Now, did he sign a contract in blood saying yeah. that? No. <laughs> but I believe him. He uh, he doesn't seem to have an interest in meddling. And honestly, we wouldn't let ourselves be meddled with right. either. So it's not that there are no strings attached. You just can't see the strings or you're unaware. I mean, you're going into this eyes open, I guess. And you think he is being – he's as good a steward as you could ask for. Yeah. I mean, I previously worked for Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. I cashed some of those checks, um, <laughs> and he was and just to be clear, was very hands on in various ways. At, at, he really likes journalism. He likes newspapers. He likes being in it um, more than he does making money from it. Yeah. I think. And did you did you look at all right? Well, I remember Pierre Omidyar had good intent, and he funded the Intercept, and then a couple other stuff, and there was a mess there. And are there things we can learn from that, or one rich guy is different from the other rich guy? And, we shouldn't learn yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't know enough about what has happened yeah. to the Intercept to know if that's something to do with Pierre's funding or 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 not. I mean, the, the stories I know mostly have to do with sources getting burned inadvertently, which is terrible that. and yeah. tragic, and that breaks my heart as a journalist. So, whether those were avoidable, you know, whether um, what led to that, I don't know. But I wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't say that there's something that came screaming out to me from that. I would say that. You know, when we were looking at funding, the most important thing to me was that uh, we just not have somebody who want to interfere, right? I mean, the foundations actually are notorious for wanting to interfere. Yep. They often want to fund just one beat or one topic, right? right and, like I said, there's no free money. Someone, right. is, someone is always giving you money with something in mind. doesn't mean it's bad. It's just they have a, there's right. a reason they're giving it to you. But it is interesting. You know, I don't know if you know this. I've spent a bunch of time now in the weeds with the foundations, but um, MacArthur and some other foundations actually put together a pledge um, that said that journalism funding should be unrestricted grants. And a lot of them have signed it and committed to that. And that is a great thing because I think there is a growing recognition that, A, journalism isn't going to fund itself, at least until someone figures out the best pivot ever. And B, restricted grants are just a a way of of censorship or or controlling the stories. And so I've found that the big foundations, the, the ones whose names you know, are pretty good about that. So 10 years ago, 
sort of the rise. Of, well, Craigslist has been growing for a long time, but Craigslist was really growing. At the same time, newspapers were, were falling off a cliff. Lots of people, including myself, connected those things. You feel comfortable working with Craig Newmark. He's also donating to other journalistic endeavors, to, uh, $20 million to CUNY. You don't think see this as penance for whatever he did or didn't do to papers? I mean, the truth is I um – I don't know what motivates him, and I'm not going to speculate, right? I actually feel like generally as a journalist, I try not to focus on motivations because it's probably true, for instance, that Facebook's motivations in doing the drop-down menu for racial discrimination were fine, Uh right? But the outcome might be that they were breaking civil rights laws. I don't care what you meant. I care what you did. Yes. And so I feel that way about funding too, which is like I don't know what motivates Craig to do this. I'm really grateful. (laughs) And, um, you know, we aren't going to take corporate money, so we wouldn't take money from – Google or Facebook, but we will take money from individuals in the tech industry or in other industries. You would take money from a Facebook executive. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fine. Or maybe a former Facebook executive who still has some money even though he feels bad about how he made it. In between, he could just have one less Porsche. <laughs> Let me, I want to talk to you about Facebook and, and what they're going through and, and how it's connected to what you're, you're focused on. So we're, we're talking after – 2016 elections, Cambridge Analytica, and a lot of things get conflated about sort of what Facebook is going through, um, and, and your reporting has contributed to that, and I, I think in a positive way. But do you think that that and now it's sort of conventional wisdom that people are angry at Facebook and their users are leaving, in part connected to all this anger? Do you think that's true? Well, you know, that's the thing that is so hard about the tech companies is we don't have a lot of independent data, right? We we actually don't even have like the equivalent of Nielsen for TV ratings, right? So Facebook says it's a very crude user numbers, is, right? Which is very crude user numbers. Thank you, right? Facebook tells us how many people they think they say are using it. They tell us how many people saw each ad. There's no independent metrics, right? So to me, the real qu- question that I'm interested in is providing those independent right. metrics. Facebook measures this supposedly very rigorously. They're constantly asking yeah. their users, how do you feel about it? They're not sure. sharing that information. But we don't know what it right. is, right? And so what I feel like my mission is is to provide some counterpoint to that, some other data. It will never be as good as Facebook's data, but perhaps I can provide a little bit of data. Because, you know, I don't know if people are leaving Facebook. Truthfully, I feel like a bunch of techies got a little worked up about it, some elite people. Yeah. But my regular friends are using it all the time still, right? Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard for me to reconcile. And I'm, 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 I'm smart enough to be wary of those narratives, but I don't know how to replace them. I also have this gut that sort of the Cambridge Analytica thing, which is supposedly, you know, according to Facebook executives, a giant thing, um, caused a lot of, of regular people to be upset with Facebook, is actually a proxy for Trump. And if this was um, the exact same story, but you replaced Trump with Clinton, it'd be less of a big deal. And if it was just a data breach um, and it was seemingly unconnected to elections, people would just have a generalized shrug. I mean, I feel like I have some data to support your hypothesis yeah. because in 2010, um, I led this series at the, pro- at the oh, journal, you, What geez, They I Know. I was setting you up, but okay, yes, good, good. I know. Thank you for setting me up. And basically, we did a lot of these same stories, right? We found all of the top apps on Facebook were stealing user data, yeah. right? We found um, a company, Rapleaf, that was basically doing exactly what Cambridge Analytica I, I, st- I stepped did. over this while you were telling me. I just I, I, this this is important. So you did a series for the journal called What They Know. It was you, Emily Steele. Yep. Very, very distinguished Jennifer group. Valentino. Awesome right. group of people. And the big idea was you were explaining to a broad audience how data collection works specifically on the internet and internet yep. and advertising, but just broadly how, how people are tracking what you're doing. Yeah. And we did um, a lot of these stories, right, like similar to Cambridge Analytica about – 
how third parties were getting all the Facebook data. And then Facebook was like, oh, I'm so right. sorry. We'll fix it. Like, la, 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 right? Or Rap Leaf, which was doing political targeting, using the voter list and finding people online using yeah, that Leaf. information. Remember, remember that? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it just didn't have the resonance at the time, right? First of all, it was 2010, so we were maybe all not using our phones quite as much and be as so embedded in Facebook yeah. at the time. And also, it was just a little abstract and techy. And I think you're right, though. The political moment, right, what happened at the election was everybody felt so surprised, right? Like, oh, my God, back in, what back happened in 2016? In, in yeah. 2016. Who can we blame what happened? Yeah, what and wrong? I feel like there's – and the thing that makes me crazy about it is we don't know. You know, people say, oh, it's all because of the dark ads on Facebook or the Russians. But we'll never know because only Facebook has that data, right? Yeah. And that is – a crazy thing, right? We're, that's not true in any other part of our election process. Like, you know, you can see radio ads, TV ads, print ads. All of those things are available for the public to right. see. And it's still hard to parse exactly why someone in Wisconsin who voted for Obama X number of years yeah. ago turned around and voted for Trump. But at least you can see who bought ads there. Yeah, so. right. Exactly. My point is you're never going to really fully know. But I think there was also some question about whether it was like some black magic yeah, yeah. online. So I want like, – I really, I'm glad you teed it up because I did want to ask you about that that series because it's a great series. You should go back. I was reading it this week in preparation for this, and a lot of it. I mean, you guys were were, were approaching this as investigative journalists, and so you're saying, "Hey, I want to show you something and something you should know about." And the insinuation is, "This is something, by the way, that's wrong." But a lot of it reads like a primer for like, "This is just how." digital display advertising works. This is how ad tech works. And I, I was wondering if you felt like, boy, I wish we'd found the devastating thing that really would have gotten people's attention. Because you'd say, oh, we, we showed this person how this company was able to track her down to the pixel and figure out her age and what she rented and all this stuff. And again, like you said, there was no sort of resonance for it. Um, well, do you think there was like a uh, – you needed a Cambridge Analytica to make that pop? Yeah. No, this is where you and I have like some fights about ad tech, right? Because when I first came out with that series, you were like, that's just how ad tech works, yeah. right? <laughs> and that is how it started, right? Our very first story was really only about Which, again, online tracking. I, this is a good thing that you were showing people yep. how it works because, by the way, they still don't know how it works. Correct. But very quickly, we did find many abuses, right? So we found all those Facebook – apps that were stealing data. We found a lot of phone. We, we tested 100 iPhone and Android apps, many of which were taking user data. In fact, Apple came out with a new way of setting identifiers as a result of that type of, you know, abuse. Yeah. We found, you know, Google was um, tricking the Safari web browser into allowing it to set cookies. They paid a $22 million fine to the FTC. I do think we ended up, we started off with more of explanatory, but we really did end up uh, in a place where we found th things that really surprised us. In fact, one of my favorite stories was the one where we, we looked at when you log into a website, put your username and password, who was sending that information to third parties? And the Wall Street Journal was one of the top yeah. <laughs> offenders of sending that to the third party. I mean, I do remember talking to a lot of ad tech execs. I used to pay more attention to that business. And they were all very nervous and upset about what you were doing. And they were really worried you were going to find something terrible. Um, and then they kind of had a collective sigh of relief by the end of it. But their main defense was, for most of what you're reporting, was, well, yeah, that's what we do. And... One, we need to be able to do uh, this kind of advertising to support whatever we're publishing. And two, it's better than – then they would name, you know, the credit card industry or something else. Mm -hmm. uh, we're less invasive than X, Y, or Z. I assume you heard a lot of that. I did, we were yes. talking to. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that the general consumer is more knowledgeable uh, than they were about this stuff and or do you think they care about this stuff? 
know. I, I think people have a little bit more knowledge than they yeah. did then. I think people still don't know how much to care, right? And that's what I think collectively as a society, we actually just don't know how much to care because we don't know how much it matters, right? right. Like did if it swung the election, then it really matters. Right. If it was just margin at the edge, you know, maybe it doesn't matter or it's like something we can mitigate against. And so that's why I feel like I'm just really committed to taking a data-driven approach to these questions because yeah. I feel like we just don't have enough evidence to know how much they matter. I'm open to the idea that everything I've done is meaningless, but I would still like to do it to prove that. <laughs> Just so we're clear, I'm not suggesting that we're doing it meaningless. But I am saying like it, no, it's, it, takes, a, it takes a certain kind of fortitude to go, this is important. I'm going to keep doing it. And eventually people are going to appreciate it. It sounds the wrong way I'm framing it. Very often I think it's hard to do this kind of work and not get pats on the back from regular people or to see people handing over their personal information for the equivalent of a candy bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also just fundamentally am interested in the idea of, of whether people – I think my, my gut is that when people say they care about privacy, they really mean pornography, health slash insurance, and, and maybe voting. And the, if any of that they think is being exposed, they'd be really worried. And beyond that, they probably but, don't care that yeah, much. Yeah, and I think the reason is that we just don't know how much it matters, right? right? We literally don't know. Like if we were in China and we were where they have an algorithm that determines like if you've gone, you know, in the western region where there's a Muslim group that they're worried about them being terrorists. They have an algorithm that they, if you go to the gas station, then you do a certain social media post or whatever, and then they throw you in a re-education camp because you're too risky. Now, if that was happening here, people would suddenly be a lot more concerned about their personal data. That'd be very bad. Right. So my point is that the we just don't know, yeah. right? And if that happened, then we would all retroactively like, oh my God, I wish I'd never signed up for any of those apps because the government would right. take that data. But the idea that Google sees my email, I'm just not going to think about it. And maybe yeah. if I'm upset, maybe I'll notice that they've sent me an ad that seems to be reflective of my email and that upsets me. Or you go all the way to the, the world of make-believe where, and I know tech reporters who believe this, that Facebook is listening to what I'm saying on my phone and, and serving me ads, which is not true. And if you're a tech person, you should know better than that. Um, but if you're a regular person, that sounds like a reasonable thing to assume, that Facebook is that smart that they're doing Well, that. I have to say, like, that one has come to me so many times. Yeah. People say to me specifically about Instagram that they feel like it's listen. the ads they see there are so perfectly related to something they just mentioned. And they wonder if it's voice related. Those are the kinds of things we want to test, right? Because I know that Facebook has said many times it's not true. You know, their record of truth, yeah. truthiness is spotty. And I would just like to test that premise, right? And so what we're going to do is test all such things. And half of them will never prove out and half of them will turn out to be true. I mean, to me, what that says is people don't understand how much they are collecting about you. That yep. even though you don't think you're giving them this information, you are either directly through Facebook or through any other web interaction. And they can knit together this portrait of you And yet every once in a while – Every once in a while, it turns out to be true that, like, you, Uber was totally taking data off your phone about your movements when you weren't using Uber, yep. right? Even though their thing said they weren't. So every once in a while, those guys are cheating Oh, yeah. I'm not system. saying they're paragons of virtue. I'm just saying, like, in, in this case, like, the reason they're able to deliver targeting advertising is because they've developed this really good targeted advertising. Yeah. And also, uh, the other thing that none of us want to admit is that we're not as unique as we think. <laughs> like, we're just, like, kind of obvious and predictable. Yeah. This is a data-driven journalism. So you, the way you want to collect the data is how? You want so to walk we'll around do, with a clipboard and pull people? <laughs> Maybe. I uh-huh. hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. <laughs> That's a way, um, right? Yeah. No, it is. Um, we're going to do 
all the usual things, right? We will file public records requests. Um, we will use automated data collection across the internet. We will do crowdsourcing. One thing we did a lot at ProPublica was build tools that people could use to donate their data to us in very specific ways. So with the Facebook political ads, we built like a browser extension. People could add it to their browser and then when they were on Facebook, it would identify which ads were political and so send it to us. So you're asking people to flag stuff for you. Yeah, but we would build the tool so they didn't have to actually do anything, mm-hmm. right? Like the only thing they have to do is install the tool. So I imagine we'll do a bunch of that. Um, you know, we've done crazy things like, you know, Jeff and Surya went on a boat outside of Mar-a-Lago and scanned uh, the Wi-Fi remotely to show that it was totally vulnerable to hackers. That was you guys? Yeah. I thought it was a, a Gizmodo. It was a joint yeah, okay, thing good, with good. Gizmodo, yeah. That was a great story. Uh-huh. It was the most fun ever. So we are trying to find a way Go to do more boating yeah. investigations. Yeah. I mean, it's oh, so terrifying. <laughs> so terrifying. I mean, if we could do it, like. Exactly. That's the point of you just got, literally got on a boat. Yes. And we're able to pick up, like. Also Trump to open pornography ports, printer yeah. Wi-Fi 6 yeah. from Mar-a-Lago. It's <laughs> a great story. And then, uh, I mean, but one of the things you want to do is collect this stuff in mass. You've got a conflict with Facebook and, and some of the other tech platforms as well about, about the ways that you want to do automated data collecting. Well, yeah. I mean, so automated data collection on the Internet is, um, you know, it's time-honored technique. Lots of journalists do it. But it technically can violate the terms of service. So what is, what is automated data collecting? So here? basically you build a little thing that uh, it's called a spider or a crawler that goes mm-hmm. out and basically the way Google indexes the web you you go out you look at every web page and um, collect uh, the information yeah. from it and then they do it to index we don't usually crawl the whole web we would do a crawl of something very specific for you know um, but we build tools like that to find data right so a kind of classic thing we would probably do is look for you know, if there's a new creepy way that people are being tracked online. So there was a couple years back something called canvas fingerprinting, like you couldn't detect it in your browser. You could crawl the web, look for all the websites that are using that technique, right, and publish a list of those sites. And Facebook says you can't do this because... So crawling on Facebook is prohibited by their terms of service. So specifically, Facebook is a walled garden. Um, you're really only supposed to be able to see your own feed. And this is not built as a anti-journalism feature. No, it's an anti. It's a. It's basically so that other people don't just copy all the data and make a right. rival it's, it's, social right. network. Right. It's, it's for competitive commercial reasons. That they right. Have this because role. you know they face a lot of competition. Yeah, but that's <laughs> the idea, right? This the most the thing that fuels us is this yeah. data. We we are right. going to monetize it, and we don't. You, all, they still insist on this whole thing about they don't have your data. It somehow magically appears from other sources. It's so tiresome. <laughs> um, but it's the it's what makes the thing go right. So they want to protect that and and, and limit yeah. access. Yeah. So to they and others have limitations on what you can collect using automated means. And theirs are probably the most strict that I know of. And so we don't do crawling across Facebook. It would break their terms of service. And it would also actually be technically difficult to do because they have very good technical measures against it. So, for instance, when we do data collection on Facebook, like the one we did with political ads, we just built a tool so that users could send us their data. So we felt like that's much less intrusive because a user theoretically should have some right to have their data and send it to somebody. 
so the, the, the cheap journalist in me wants to say, oh, well, see, there's an irony here. This is the sort of stuff Cambridge Analytica, something, something, something was doing. And, and by the way, Facebook thought they were doing good by letting the Cambridge Analyticas of the world collect this data. And now you can see why they'd be want to – in addition to commercial reasons why they'd want to be extra protective about this mm-hmm. stuff. I say the difference between us and Cambridge Analytica, there are many. But yes. one really key one is – so, for instance, the Facebook political – ad collector tool we built. It literally strips out every single bit of identifying information. So the only thing we received was the ad. We didn't know which your Facebook ID, we didn't actually even know your IP address, what location, what country you were in. So we knew nothing about the people who used it and contributed. And we built the tool to comply with the European data protection standards. So we tend to be really targeted in our data collection. I wrote a book called Dragnet Nation, right? And the idea is dragnets where they indiscriminately collect data are sort of, you know, they make you feel like it's unfair. Mm -hmm. And so we deliberately try not to build dragnets to build really targeted data collection just to answer one specific question. Do you feel like, and I guess this is probably true of any journalist doing anything, frankly, the, the asymmetry between what your resources are and the resources of a Facebook that you're trying to learn about, stripping out the David Goliath sort of morality play of it that's just like you're just perpetually at this giant disadvantage and you can never really get to the answer you want and and they have it all and it's behind a wall and you'll never get to it yeah but i think that's true of every kind of uh, covering um covering private companies is is like that because um, i mean i was a business reporter for a long time and covering exxon is the same way you know you don't get a lot of access into what's Exxon going on. Exxon doesn't let you in and say, hey, here's, here's, here's <laughs> I mean, all the oil stuff. Who knows what they that. do, but yeah. I don't think so. To be fair, there are some really fun companies to cover, like a News Corp or a MySpace, where it's just full of characters who tell you all sorts of crazy shit. I mean, shit. media is a great industry yes. to cover because no one yes. can keep their mouth shut. Yes. <laughs> but um, I do feel like there's a huge asymmetry, but I also feel that the fact that those businesses are so opaque means that sort of anything that you get is news yeah. <laughs> and it it can pry open more things. And so I guess I see it more as an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Well, and obviously, and if it's hard, yeah. someone else has not done it probably. Right. That's what I like, those kinds of things. You must have a, a target list, right? You're going to launch in 2019. You want to lead with a story on, you're not going to tell me. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> with this stuff, and you talked about this as sort of, or at least one of the stories I saw us talking about this as being sort of scientific, you know, Scientific method. Thank you. It's late in the day. Problem with the scientific method is very often you do this experiment and nothing comes of it, right? Yeah, right. No results. It's boring. And I this have... is a problem with lots of investigative journalism and journalism. Just yep. lots of stuff doesn't amount to anything. And if you're good about it, you don't publish it because you go, there's no story there. But you yeah. set an extra high bar for yourself. Yeah. No, it's super hard, right? And uh, um, that's true with investigations. It's a, it's definitely true with these types of data investigations. One thing we have been thinking about is whether we – we have to talk to our lawyers about this, but I would really like to publish a no results page where we have our sort of failed investigations because I do think that sometimes our negative findings are actually interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Does it show your work? We, this Here's a bunch of data we collected. It doesn't prove anything. But the only problem with that is it may – it may be legally impossible to do because it, the question you asked is a little bit of an accusation, right? Like it's like we were testing if Facebook was doing a bad thing and then by showing our data and saying, well, it doesn't seem like they are, but you look. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> that might not be good with the lawyers. So I haven't quite sorted out whether we can do that. <laughs> Could you just do it say, here's some data we collected? <laughs> yeah, we'll see how this evolves. I'll come back in a year and we can talk about that. <laughs> and how important is the idea that 
I mean, you've been, we've been talking about it on and off throughout this interview and, and many others that you've done, that the idea that this is all data-driven as opposed to an interesting story. I mean, we are not against interesting stories. Uh-huh. And one thing that I do think is that we want people to come to us. We still want sources to come to us. And we hope that our data savvy means they can bring us sophisticated stories that they're worried other people might not understand. So you're not, not going to turn it down and say, this is not a data story. <laughs> no, I don't we do. are not going to turn it down. Um, we are I'm not, I'm, open I'm, for business. I'm not kidding because, right, this is, uh, you're not doing the same thing as 538, but there's some parallels, right? And I think people loved Nate Silver's work, but particularly when he was accurately forecasting the elections, right? And when he's not doing that, or by the way, when he gets Trump wrong like everybody else, it's less interesting. Or, you know, baseball's interesting, but uh, what's the best burrito in the world? Like, I don't, it's a cute stunt that you can, like, apply some sort of data-driven analysis yeah. to it, but I don't really care. And I think they've struggled a bit with that. Um, and I wonder if you've boxed yourself in, but you're saying no, the, the box is open. Yeah, no, I think we want to use data when it's appropriate, and we also will do stories that will not be data-driven, right? Like, that's always going to be true um, because we um, we want to do important work and some important questions. You know, I guess the way I would say it is that all journalism is really data-driven, right? Like, this interview, this is data collection. You are collecting data about me, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And so it's a sample size of one, but it still matters. And so I guess I would say all of our stories, they will vary in sample size from one This is like the VCs I talked to say, our thesis is about network effects, and then they can make anything a network <laughs> yes, effect. that's what I'm doing right now. Very good. You should become a VC. <laughs> uh, this is a great conversation. What You, you announced this Sunday night slash Monday morning. We're recording this Wednesday night, what is what is the best response, most surprising response you've gotten over the last couple of days? Oh, well, I have to say the most heartwarming response yeah. is just people who in my past are mean to me now sucking up to me. <laughs> You're not looking at me, are you? I'm not looking good. at you. <laughs> okay. We're good, right? We are all good. We're great. Okay, good. Um, this is great. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. I look forward to the launch. I look forward to you coming back and discussing what yeah. you got right, what you got wrong. I want to see that data to. dump of, of yes. failed stuff. We'll do a we'll do a quantitative analysis of it. Deal. Thank you. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, one more time, if you like it, go tell someone else about it. You can measure that or not. I don't care. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence Thirteen and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you, so you can listen to this show for free. Jill Robbie, Golda Arthur, and Eric Johnson are all awesome. This is Recode Media. There's a new episode coming to you on Tuesday. It's a special episode. See you then. Today's show is brought to you by Ericsson. 5G is not just a step up from 4G, it's a game-changing advancement. It's 100 times faster. And the ultra-reliable, low-latency network means it can connect more than phones and tablets. It connects everything. Imagine a jam session with band members miles apart in perfect sync. It's happening. It's happening, man. Imagine an 8K entertainment system in your self-driving car that rivals your home theater. That is not happening, but it could happen. 5G will have the power to revolutionize existing industry models or even create entirely new ones. This is just a glimpse at what the future will look like with Ericsson and 5G. Find out how 5G will transform the world at ericsson.com slash 5G. I'm going to spell Ericsson for you. E-R-I-C-S-S-O-N dot com slash 5G. Some bonus content. It was a very special guest for you guys. You may have heard him before if you were a dedicated listener. This is Introduce Yourself. Jonah Kafka. Jonah Kafka. Related to me how? You are my dad. Okay. And you are how old? 
Eight years. Eight years. You're very quiet now, but normally not so quiet. I brought you in for a very specific reason. You've come in here before. But you and your brother spend a ton of time playing a specific game. What game is that? Fortnite. Okay, that's true. The game you really spend most of your time playing is... Flappy Bird. No, come on. This is, this is, like, this is like my real guess. Minecraft. Wanna, Minecraft. Roblox. Joan, I brought you here because I want you to talk to me about Roblox, which is a game that I've heard about for a while that you and your brother have spent a ton of time playing. And do you know how much it's worth now? Um, what do you mean? It's worth $2.5 billion. What do you mean? I mean, the people who are investing in that company think it's worth that much money, which is the same amount of money that Microsoft paid for Minecraft, which you don't care about valuations. But I want you to explain to the Recode Media audience why you like playing Roblox and why all your friends like playing Roblox. Well, the reason people play Roblox is because it's not like a game like Flappy Bird or Mr. Jump or Subway Surfers, where it's only one specific game, it's a bunch of different games. A bunch of different games all under Roblox. You go in, it's free, right? Yeah, it's free, but the stupid thing is, is that it asks you to buy Robux and stuff. And the thing about that is the only th- a couple things that people are bummed about and one thing is that you can't make a game on the iPhone or the iPad. So Roblox but lets also, you play a bunch of different games, but, but if you have a computer, you can make your own yeah. game and put it up there? But also the thing is, is that you, real, Roblox is really just a game to play on the computer because the tablet, it always glitches out. So really it's a computer game. You guys spend a lot of time asking to use it on my phone or your mom's phone. Well, yeah, but that's because the only computer is Ben's. Got it. So do you think that the fact that you and your buddies all like Roblox so much, you think it's because of the games? Do you think it's because you can build your own well, games? Do you think it's, it's because you can talk to each other? The reason is is because it's not just one specific game. Yeah. It's a couple of different games. And also the thing that is not very good about Roblox is the chatting thing where you can chat. Because then also my cousin Kai, hey Kai, he has like two hundred friends, and he only knows like five, and it's really not that good. Also, it's a lot about the um your name too because my brother's friend named Kason. No, let's not talk about people's specific names. But the fact that kids can have their own names on on the messaging is good or bad. Well, what I'm saying is that some people their usernames include their actual names. Like, say a, bo- a name, a guy that's named Bob has an account called so you Bob think that's, 68. you think that's not secure? Yeah. Yeah, you know why your dad's kind of hung up about that stuff more than other people are. Do you think Roblox is going to be as popular in a year, or do you think it gets replaced by a new game, a new version of Fortnite or something like that? Well, yeah, because Minecraft basically got replaced by Roblox, and then now... Fort people that what they thought is that there was a big hype about they didn't want a new update of Fortnite to come out because they thought when Fortnite came out Roblox wasn't going to be most popular, but then it was that a lot of people didn't like Roblox, a lot of people didn't like Fortnite because they thought it was too violent. I mean it's not that, but in Roblox didn't get replaced, but 
the thing is, is that I think Roblox is going to be like fidget spinners, where it's like it was only popular for one year. Okay. And then the next year. But it's been around for 10 years, so maybe. No one cares. All right, Jonah, this has been edifying. You know what that means? Mm, It means I learned a lot. Thank you. You knew all of this before, I'm pretty sure. Mm, Not all of it. Anyway, it's, it's better to hear it directly from you. Yeah. The horse's mouth. Thank you, Jonah.